The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Bryce, and I'm one of the residents here at Sacred City. It's my joy uh, and honor to get to preach for you this morning. Um, This Sunday is... A bit of a unique Sunday, uh, because in churches all around the country, uh, there's going to be somebody in the pulpit who is probably not the lead pastor. Uh, I think all the lead pastors got together at some point and decided that uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Christmas, they're just not going to preach. So I want you to go home. A little bit of a homework assignment, I suppose. You can go home. Uh, look up in the live stream of all the churches that you can think of, and my guess is about 80% of them are not going to have the lead pastor in the pulpit. But noting that, I'm thankful for this day, and I'm thankful for a couple reasons. One, it gives me the opportunity to get a preach for you this morning, um, and two, it gives Pastor Justin a much-deserved uh, week off from prepping a sermon and preaching a sermon Uh, And as you guys know, he's getting up there in age. These these days and weeks off are, they're a little more necessary now than maybe they were in the past. Um, And I'm glad because it gives them, you know, the opportunity to try out, you know, different country buffets and read the newspaper, play bingo, learn how to use his iPhone. And I can say all that. I can say all that up here because, well... The hearing goes first, so he's probably not even going to hear me saying that. But we've got a good bit to cover this morning, as you all saw in our uh, text. So what I want to do is pray for us, and then we'll, we'll hop into it this morning. God, we want to thank you for being a God that has called us together together as this local church, but also together as children of God. And God, we want to 
ask that as we gather here this morning, it isn't simply just a Christian duty that we're seeking to fulfill. It isn't just an hour dedicated to learning a few things and singing a few songs, but it's a time that we spend very intentionally seeking to worship you, seeking to know you, seeking to be changed by you. And so, God, the only way we can do that is if you show up this morning. So, God, would you come in this place this morning, speak to us through your word? Would you change our hearts? Would you increase our affections for you? And then ultimately, would you bring glory and honor to your son, Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, at this point in our series, as we've continued studying through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've transitioned now into the second half of the sermon. In the first half, Jesus has dialed in on this idea or this concept of what it means to actually live the happy life or the blessed life, or maybe like we've been calling it, the flourishing life. And it's through this lens of the flourishing life that from this point on, we need to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So in every single week, in every single thing that Jesus is saying, we need to have a, a specific focus on this idea of the flourishing life. And so as we continue in this text this morning, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to have this lens that we're looking at this text of the flourishing life, that Jesus is both offering us and he's calling us into. Now, this flourishing life that Jesus is talking about throughout chapter 5 and into chapter 6 that we're in this morning, it isn't a life where we just kind of add some Jesus-y things into our already existing life. It isn't a life where we add some Christian things into our pursuit of what we think the happy life is ourselves, but it's a life where every area, every avenue is totally and completely called to die and then be resurrected into perfection that Jesus is offering us. Now, our ideas and thoughts, as we looked at through the Beatitudes and then uh, into the, the areas of marriage and anger, all of our thoughts on all of these things, Jesus is calling to be flipped upside down. The way we deal with anger must be overhauled. The way we looked at sexuality must be overhauled and flipped. The way we deal with our spouses and, and, and work inside of our marriages, those things have got to be totally and completely flipped on their head. And as we looked at this last week uh, with Pastor Rob, and, and then now looking at this week, even things like our charitable giving and our prayer have got to be flipped upside down. Now, with that being said, let's go back and let's read our text for this morning. This is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father 
who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, as we all know, and and Jeff mentioned this morning, um, 2020 has been a uniquely difficult year for nearly everybody, except for maybe Jeff Bezos. It's probably been an okay year for him, but if you're not Jeff Bezos, this year has been a challenging one full of troubles and trials, and at this point in the year, we've rounded third, we're heading home, we've got four days left of 2020, and we're I'm working on a petition in my house to just skip the number 20. We're going from 19 straight to 21 for the rest of forever now. We're not even going to talk about 20. But with the difficulty this year has brought us and with these specific troubles, one would think that for the Christian, this year, while being a year of a lot of things diminishing, uh, while a lot of things being lost, you know, many of us have lost loved ones, we've lost jobs, we've lost incomes, With all things that are being lost this year, one would think that for the Christian, this is a year that prayer would have intensified. That all the difficulties this year has offered us would have resulted in hundreds of hours of deep, intimate, fruitful communion with God. But unfortunately... I don't believe that that is our reality. What these troubles have actually led us towards are things like blog posts, political campaigning, social media, conspiracy theories on how to best set up a homestead for when the nanorobots take over, when they put the chip in your arm. All of these different things are where we're heading with our concerns and troubles of this year and not exactly are we turning to prayer. If we evaluate our prayer in 2020, and even before this year, if we're honest, I'm afraid we'll find a kind of prayer that is underwhelming and perhaps even unappealing. Prayer if we're not careful. Maybe this was even my attitude when I saw that this was the specific text that we were going to be preaching this on this morning. Prayer, if we're not careful, can become so mundane that it is nothing more than this checkbox on our spiritual itineraries that we do inside of our Christian programs. And if this is our view on prayer, then our participation in the flourishing life that Jesus offers us is going to suffer. As a matter of fact, I would argue that one could evaluate how well they are living 
the flourishing life by looking at how often and how well they are praying. Our participation in the flourishing life directly parallels our devotion to prayer. If we look at the life of Jesus, the only person to truly live and experience the flourishing life, we see prayer to the Father as almost a prerequisite to nearly everything that Jesus did. Even giving himself to entire nights of prayer. So if prayer is directly related to our experience of the flourishing life, then as Christians, we must have an unshakable obligation to pray. But hold up. Didn't we just say a second ago that if you operate your prayer life out of this Christian obligation that it's going to suffer? Well, yes, and that is still true, but that's prayer that only works out of a place of Christian duty or obligation. Now, prayer most certainly is a duty, but we need to understand the duty of prayer and the obligation of prayer in an appropriate way. When commenting on prayer as duty or prayer as obligation, John Piper says this, well, you could call it that, it's a duty the way it's a duty for a scuba diver to put on his air tank before he goes underwater. It's a duty the way pilots should listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty the way soldiers in combat should clean their rifles and load their guns. It's a duty the way hungry people eat food. It's a duty the way thirsty people drink water. It's a duty the way a deaf man puts on his hearing aid. It's a duty the way a diabetic takes his insulin. Christian duty is a duty that brings about vibrancy of life. Or to use the language of the Sermon on the Mount, it's a duty that brings about the flourishing life. And when prayer is recognized as an essential to our pursuit of this flourishing life, it isn't just a duty, but rather it now becomes a duty that is done out of delight. Because of the vibrancy of life that is found in praying to the Father, it is through prayer that the Holy Spirit enables disciples to participate in the flourishing life. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says to imagine a scenario where you're told by a doctor that you have an incredibly lethal and deadly condition. And he tells you that you were hours away from certain death unless you were to take this very specific pill before bed each night. Would you forget? Would you just not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial to your life that you would not miss a night, that you would not forget. Keller says the same is true for prayer. If we do not pray, we do not live. Because as this year has shown us, there are too many things that we are up against. Now, does the fact that taking the pill is a duty take away from the obvious joys that come from taking that pill. If this scenario were true for you and you had to take this 
specific pill and somebody asked you, why are you taking this pill? You wouldn't begrudgingly say, well, I mean, it really is quite a burden. You know, I get to spend more time with my wife and get to see my kids grow up and get married, but man, I got to take this pill every night. It really is quite a burdensome task. There would be nothing begrudging about the way that you took a pill that kept you alive. This specific pill is empowering you for life. It is allowing you to experience a vibrant life where you get to see all the things that you dream of seeing like your children growing up. Any person in their right mind would take this pill and they would take it joyfully. And it's by looking at prayer through the lens of the flourishing life that we begin to do so, that we begin to pray out, not just out of duty, but out of a place of duty of delight. So if prayer is so vital to the flourishing life, then we've got to understand how to pray appropriately. Now, like every pill, saying on this kind of same illustration, every pill or medicine, you know, they have the little instructions on the side of the bottle, you know, take once a day, take with a meal, uh, do, not, do not drink alcohol with. All, you know, all these different instructions come on the bottle. And in the Lord's model prayer that we're looking at this morning, Jesus is showing us how to pray. He's giving us the instructions on prayer. So what I want to do is go back and I want to look at these guidelines that Jesus offers us on prayer. And we're going to start in verse 5 and we'll read through verse 8. Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, prayer is the most widely practiced spiritual discipline in the world. Nearly every religion prays, and even those who are not religious have adopted prayer. Even Secular culture specifically has adopted their own method or version of prayer. Author Karen Sosnowski, in an article she wrote about how she prays secular prayers, offers some advice on praying for the irreligious. She mentions that if praying to a male authority figure feels compromising to you, then you can offer your prayers to someone like, and this is a quote from the article, Wonder Woman. You can offer your prayers to Wonder Woman. But for the more mature and really the goal of secular prayer, for those who choose to pray outside of the DC universe, they need to truly look inward and find the best future version of themselves. The self that has mastered and accomplished 
and achieved all the things that they are wanting to achieve. And as you find that perfect future version of yourself, you offer your prayers to that. Interfaith chaplain and author Chris Highland agrees, and he even adds that praying to the self is not only a good and healthy habit, but is probably what most prayers are anyways. Now, it would be nice to look at these comments and these thoughts on prayer and dismiss them as ridiculous. I mean, praying to Wonder Woman, come on. But unfortunately, I think that many times the bulk of our prayers look much more similar to this than we would like to admit. Now, are we praying to Wonder Woman or Batman? Probably not. But when it comes to praying to the self, I imagine we struggle more than we know. Our prayers, and specifically our public prayers, often align with an elevation of the self and its idea of the happy life or the blessed life, rather than falling in line with what the life is that Jesus truly calls flourishing. How? Let's go back to verse 5. I'm not going to read it, but we can just kind of address it where Jesus right here is saying to not pray like the hypocrites. Looking for our prayers to be seen by others, praying so that we can have this sort of recognition of superior spirituality. But I believe if we reflect on our prayers and the motivations behind our prayers, then we've got to admit that at least part of the time that we pray, we are aware of the perception of others and aware of what specific perception we might be leaving on others. And when we consider the perception that others may have on us in our prayers, we then attempt to conjure up sort of our best Christian sentences with our most appropriate Christian cliches, and we offer you know, prayers to uh, not necessarily God, even though we want to say Father God every eight words, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's who we're praying to. As we kind of conjure up these little Christian chants, what we're doing is we're, we're considering the perception of others and now offering up, as Jesus calls it, empty phrases. Now, this works the other way as well. Maybe you shy away from public prayer. Now, the tendency to avoid public prayer finds its roots in the same hypocritical motivations as the more obnoxious alternative. When I ask someone, or even ask myself, why didn't you pray at MC? Or, or why didn't you pray at this other uh, social gathering or, or where there's public prayer involved? Uh, the answer is almost never, well, I was feeling the temptation in the moment to pray for my own self-glorification and gratification. So I decided that it would be best for my spirituality in the moment to just take this holy humility stance and be quiet. That's not what people say, and that's not what we think. 
the, the reality is when you ask someone or when you even ask yourself, why didn't I pray? It's especially with our public prayers. The answer is usually, well, I didn't know what to say. And if we really break that statement down, what you're really saying is, I didn't want to look foolish because I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to sound less Christian than everybody in the room because all of the good cliches were already taken. And that, again, is an instance where we are operating out of a place of inward desires to satisfy the self and to elevate the self and pursue its idea of this false, flourishing life. And Jesus tells those in our text this morning that those of us who are looking for that life, looking for that reward, disastrously will find it at the cost of truly flourishing. These prayers, with a high consideration of the perception of others, they are no different than those prayers encouraged by secular culture. When we pray like this, we are offering prayers up to man in hopes of receiving some sort of reverence of man for our superior Christianese that we can speak. American pastor and theologian James Montgomery Boyce uh, had what, you know, some, some people have called it maybe an extremely pessimistic view on this tendency and the motivation behind Christians in their prayer. Uh, but in addressing his own congregation, he said this. I imagine what that elder meeting was like that day. I believe that no one, I believe that not one prayer in a hundred of those that fill our churches on a Sunday morning is actually made to Almighty God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are made to men or to the praying one himself. And that includes the prayers of the preachers and the prayers of those who are members in the congregation. Now, when I read this quote for myself, it hit me in the gut pretty hard. Uh, I was trying to think of some sort of workaround to avoiding praying in my sermon because I didn't want to seem as hypocritical as James Montgomery Boyce was uh, accusing me of. It hit me in the gut pretty hard, and even if it's not hitting you as hard, or maybe you think that this uh, statement is a bit of a stretch, there's no denying that there is some uncomfortable and unfortunate truth in that that must be addressed. Even if this statement is only partially true, we need to do what we can to keep our prayers free from vain repetition and self-promotion. So how do we know if we are doing this or not, though? How do we know if we are praying these prayers that we pray with hypocritical motivations? Well, perhaps we can reflect on a few questions and, and maybe self-diagnose our praying life. Do I pray more frequently or fervently when I'm alone with God than when I'm in public? Is my public prayer an overflow of my private prayer? What do I think of when I'm praying in public? 
Am I looking for just the right phrase? Am I thinking of the worshipers more than God? Am I a spectator to my own performance? Is it possible that the reason more of my prayers are not answered is because I'm more concerned about bringing my prayer to men rather than God? We can be sure Jesus meant exactly what he said when he said to be careful not to do your righteousness before men, to be seen by them, because if you do, you have no reward from, his, from my Father in heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't simply offer us these do-nots to prayer, but he gives us a model of what prayer actually should look like. He gives us this guideline of prayer. And I'm sure many of your Bibles have this section titled, The Lord's Prayer. But I think a more appropriate title, as Tim Keller calls it, is The Lord's Model Prayer. Now, I believe this is a more appropriate title because this prayer is intended by Jesus to be an example of the ideal prayer offered to God and not necessarily an exact prayer that we are intended to pray often. And the church as a whole has had an interesting relationship with this prayer. Even though Jesus said, and literally the verse before, in verse 8, to not heap up empty phrases, we've turned this prayer into probably the most heaped up empty phrase that we've prayed in church history. This prayer is meant to work as a guide or a teaching to us on the ideal prayer, rather than being an actual prayer that we should pray. As a matter of fact, Tim Keller calls the Lord's model prayer a master class on prayer. And it's by using this master class as a guideline to our prayers that we will begin to have our prayers more in line with the prayers of the flourishing life. So what I want to do this morning is go through this prayer. And I want to briefly comment on each petition inside the prayer. And a brief is a very significant word because there is so much that we could talk about in each line of this prayer that we, we simply just don't have the time this morning. So uh, if you're wanting to go deeper into each line of the prayer, Sacred City has a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer that is up on our website uh, where they go verse by verse, line by line through the Lord's Prayer. And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. Now, this prayer is divided up into two categories. The first half is a, is a chunk where uh, Jesus is seeking to uh, have our prayers align our desires with the will of God. And the second half contains uh, what you could call our petitions or our specific needs, physical needs, uh, spiritual needs, uh, those, those sort of things in that second half. And so let's start in the first section, and we'll go back and we'll read starting in verse 9, and we'll go all the way to verse 10. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this first petition is a plea to God for his name to be hallowed, 
Now, what does that mean? We don't really use that word hollowed a whole lot. But for God's name to be hollowed is the same to say for God's name to be glorified. Glorified in both the world, glorified in your life, glorified in your family, in your work. It is asking for the glory of God to be manifested in the world and in your life specifically. Now, this is the ideal first petition in the ideal prayer. And really, this kind of anchors in as the main goal or need of the entire prayer. So everything else after this really just stems out of the need and want and, and, and craving of God's name being hollowed. Jesus then goes on to say, your kingdom come. Now, this section or petition right here, it doesn't necessarily mean that God isn't already king and that his kingdom isn't already everything. Because of course he's king. And of course he is creator and as creator, all of creation is his kingdom. But what this part of the prayer is doing is asking God for a new and unique manifestation of that kingdom, that future kingdom to come. This petition of the prayer uh, coming out of Advent is a very Advent-focused prayer. Looking for a new and better kingdom of God to arrive. And again, I want to encourage you, go back and listen to the sermon series because I cannot get into all the good stuff that is in this because it is so good and it is, there are such sweet truths that are in there and we really just don't have time to get to it this morning. Next, Jesus tells us to pray God's will to be done. And now this petition, I think once truly understood, is, is quite a frightening petition. Martin Luther calls this specific prayer a fearful prayer. The words that we speak when we say your will be done should be words that stick to our throat as we pray them. Now, why is that? Well, as we have seen, God and his kingdom, they're so upside down to what we're accustomed to, to the way that we want to function, to the way that we want to do life, that to pray for God's will to be done and have our desires in mind at the same time, is, it's impossible. God's will and our desires rarely seem to be the same. For example, uh, God in the, or Jesus in uh, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, God, he says for his people and his kingdom, he desires them to be meek. So when you're praying for God's will to be done, you're praying that God would make you meek. And when you pray for things like God to make you meek, he will do it despite whatever measures it may take to accomplish. And this petition, like the one right before, also has this sort of Advent ring to it. Uh, it's a petition that can look towards creation's final event, where our wills, our specific desires, they're holy and completely transformed to joyfully and sinlessly live in the will of God with God, without blemish or sin 
or desires that stray away from his desire. So, like we've already said, and I'm sure you've noticed, this first section of the ideal prayer is a very God-centered prayer. And then the focus goes on to our personal needs. And we only address our personal needs after we've first centered our hearts and our minds in prayer on God. So once we've done this, once our thoughts have been centered on God first, it now changes the way we look at the rest of our petitions. It changes the way that we seek to get God's provision for the different things in our life. So Jesus says, once we have done this, we can pray something like, give us this day our daily bread. Now, what does that mean? Are we praying for just a slice of bread and that's it? Well, essentially, what we're doing when we pray for our daily bread is we're praying for God to not make us poor and to not make us rich, but to give us precisely what we need. We pray for a life that doesn't have to wrestle with the struggles of poverty, but also a life that isn't enticed by the evils of riches. Next, Jesus says to pray for God to forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, this request was called by St. Augustine the terrible petition. And when I first read that, that Augustine thought that, I was a little curious as to why he would say that because we're asking for forgiveness for our sins. How could this be such a terrible petition? But Augustine called it this because what we are doing is asking God to forgive us according to how we forgive others. So for the person who struggles with an unforgiving heart, and when you pray this prayer, you are asking God to not forgive you of your sin. So in, in a lot of ways, this specific prayer has to be almost reorganized so that you can ask God first for grace to offer forgiveness to others who have, who have sinned and repented to you for that sin. And then now, once you have offered this forgiveness, you can pray for the forgiveness of God for your own debt. Lastly, Jesus says to pray that we are not led into temptation and delivered from evil or delivered from the evil one. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, first, what it doesn't mean is probably really helpful. What this doesn't mean is that God tempts us to sin. That is not what Jesus is saying right here. In James chapter 1, verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if God is not leading us to sin, why would Jesus add this specific petition in this prayer? Well, the word for temptation that's used right there is used another 21 times throughout the New Testament. And 20 of those times, it's referring to a test of validity of faith. So it's a test that is testing your faith, not tempting you to sin. And so the way it's being used right here, the way that we should properly pray for God to not lead us into temptation 
is that we pray and we're asking God to deliver us from the overpowering testings, recognizing that we are both weak and liable and often are prone to fold under severe testing. And then Jesus wraps up this model prayer, showing us to petition to be delivered from the evil one. Now, this part of the petition is for uh, God to provide for us spiritual protection and spiritual protection specifically from Satan. Satan and those who are uh, of him, you could say. Now, this is almost a continuation of lead us not into temptation because it's a recognition of our own feebleness to combat Satan and all of those that are kind of part of Satan, like his, his demons and his people and, and all the powers that are evil against us. What this specific petition is doing is recognizing our own feebleness to combat it on our own and pleading to God who is greater than the one we are against to protect us from the ways of the devil. Now, as we read this prayer, I think we run into an issue again. And as a matter of fact, we run into the same issue that we ran into the first time. Because of our hypocritical tendencies, when we pray this prayer or our version of this prayer, because of the remaining sin in us, the petitions of this prayer end up being, again, nothing more than empty phrases that are heaped up to God. They're cited from a script, and they give this illusion of a good performance. We're acting our way through prayer. We are saying the words of the flourishing life, but in reality, we're chasing the results of our idea of the happy life. We can say things like, hallowed be your name. We can say things like, your kingdom come. But our lives reflect through our hypocrisy that what we first and want most, the greatest, is our names to be hallowed. We want our kingdoms to come. Even as we say the right words, we do so from a self-centered heart that is seeking to perform either for man or maybe even performing for God. And God's consideration of your performance and your prayer is anti-gospel. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't model our prayers after this prayer because of our hypocritical tendencies or our inability to actually live out this life on our own? No. I'm saying that we must pray this prayer in a way that forfeits a performance-driven, duty-filled identity and operates not out of a hypocritical tendency, but out of a better, newer identity. And what exactly is that identity? If we go back to the very first line of the Lord's model prayer that Jesus offers us, we see the identity that those in Christ can now pray out of because of the work of Jesus. Jesus says this, pray like this, our Father. 
Because of what Jesus has done, he now calls those in Christ to pray as adopted children, to pray to our Father in heaven. As children of God, not performers, we pray as children. Not as hypocrites, we pray as children. What Jesus does is through repentance and faith in the gospel, Jesus brings you into his kingdom and then he enables those inside of his kingdom to address the God and king of that kingdom as father. J.I. Packer says this, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp on adoption. But this isn't how we pray. We often pray out of a place of hypocritical performance and not as adopted children of God. How often are we performing in prayer, considering the opinions of others? How often is our prayer actually a pursuit of our own kingdom, looking for not the flourishing life, but the easy life? Our tendency in prayer is to pray from a place of performance rather than a place of a child. And so this is why it's so crucial for us to remember the gospel when we pray. Jesus didn't offer us this master class on prayer and then dip out on us to figure it out on our own. Jesus lived the life of total surrender to the will of God for us. Jesus lived the life that we could only best live hypocritically. And then what did he do? He took on our sin on himself and he died for us. He became the bread of life for us. He took our debt on himself for us. And he truly, once and for all, delivered us from evil. And now Jesus is interceding to the Father on our behalf. For us. And why? Why does Jesus do all this? Why is this worth coming down, being born of a virgin, being a carpenter's son, dying on a cross? Why is this? What, what was, what's, your, what's your pull here, Jesus? What's your motivation? Jesus did all of these things so that performance concerned hypocrites can become sons and daughters of God. Jesus was treated like a hypocrite so that hypocrites can pray our Father in heaven. How does Jesus call us to pray prayers that lead to the flourishing life? 
by enabling us to pray as the adopted children of God through Christ, where Jesus can call us brother and sister. And as we pray from a place of children of God, we aren't seeking to please God with our performance and our craftiness and our cleverness and our prayers, but we are empowered to freely and confidently address the king of this great kingdom as father. And as we pray from an identity of sons and daughters, we can begin to pray to our father the prayers that lead to the truly flourishing life. Let's pray. Father, we're so prone and so it's, it's almost even in our DNA to seek to perform for your affirmation, to perform for your acceptance, to perform for your love. And God, as we... live our lives concerned with our performance, it begins to make us weary. It doesn't relieve a burden, but it only strengthens a burden that we already have. And so God, would you give us a confidence and a rest in knowing that our performance doesn't matter because Jesus has already performed perfectly for us and, and it's out of his performance that we get to be children of God, being made perfect like our Father. God, our concern with prayer is often lacking we attempt to make it on our own. We attempt to do things being forgetful of you. And so would you call us closer to you this morning with a greater and stronger desire to know you and to commune with you? Jesus, as we are about to take the supper I want to thank you for your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us that has now enabled us to become adopted children who receive an inheritance that we could never earn because of what you did for us. God, would you speak to us? Would you change us? Show us more of your love and your grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.